Thank you for joining us for the Midweek Bible Study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians, it was two weeks ago when we started, and then we were so rudely interrupted. At least I was rudely interrupted about it. Um, I want to remind you, it's one one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, 79 verses. It's one of the oldest letters in the New Testament. What I mean by that, it was one of the first written, one of the first ones written to a church, Paul on his second missionary journey. Um, We know that he preached three Sabbaths. We don't know if they were in a row or three different ones, so we don't know exactly how long that he was in the town of Thessalonica, but we do know that his preaching about Jesus in a community that was full of idols just really, to put it in West Texas terms, hacked off a lot of people. And so they ran him out of town. And he left before he wanted to leave, but there was a group of believers there that formed a church. And he wrote back to this church to encourage them. In a time when there was a lot of chaos going on, he He was reminding them of who they are in Jesus and the fact that Jesus is going to come back. In fact, that's one of the themes of the whole book is the return of Jesus, but it's the hope that we have. Many times you find him him talking about hope, and if there was ever a time that we need it, it's now because it seems like a lot of people have lost hope. I want to begin reading in verse 2, and we're going to go down to verse 10. I'm going to focus on verses 5 to 10. We've already looked at the first four verses, but to, to keep the... In fact, let's just read them all. One more is not going to hurt. That's just 10 verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It always happens in that order. First God's grace and then the peace. We give thanks to God always for you all. It's a good Texas term. For y'all. Making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God is gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivered us from the wrath 
to come. It was October. The Indians on a remote reservation asked their new chief if the coming winter was going to be cold or mild. Well, since he was a chief in modern society, he had never been taught the old secrets. And when he looked at the sky, he couldn't tell if the winter was going, what it was going to be like. But nevertheless, to be on the safe side, he told all of the tribe there on the reservation, he said, it's going to be a cold winter and you need to start collecting firewood. But being a practical leader, after several days, he got an idea. He went to a local phone, and he called the National Weather Service. And he said, is the coming winter going to be cold? And the man on the phone said, it looks like winter is going to be quite cold. So the chief went back to his people and told them, start collecting even more firewood in order to be prepared. A week later, he went back to the telephone and he called the National Weather Service and he said, does it still, like it's, still look like it's going to be a very cold winter? The man at the Weather Service said, yes, sir, it's going to be a very cold winter. So the chief went back to his people and he said, keep gathering firewood, order them to collect every scrap you can find. Two weeks later, he went back and called the National Weather Service, and he said, are you absolutely sure that the winter is going to be very cold? And the meteorologist said, sir, it looks like more and more it's going to be one of the coldest winters on record. And the chief said, how can you be so sure? And he said, because the Indians are collecting firewood like crazy. (laughs) Now... We're always following someone else, aren't we? We're always watching someone else and trying to do what they're trying to do. If you were to define or try to pick a great church, you might have a lot of them in mind. I mean, around the country, there are a lot of well-known churches that we would call a great church. And if you ask somebody, what is your definition of a great church? Somebody would say, well, it's, some, it's, a, it's a group of people who have a great building. Or they have a, a big budget. Or they've got all kinds of programs for different people. But Paul uses the word example here. And he calls the Thessalonian church an example. In fact, if you'll look in verse 7, it says, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and, and Achaia. That, that area, the, the word example there is the word tupos. We get our word type. And for those of us with hair color like mine, we know what a typewriter was. Now, kids today, they see those in museums. But a typewriter, the type on a typewriter, that little arm had a letter on that that was the type. And it would strike a ribbon that would hit the paper and would leave the, the letter on there. I'm, I'm telling those of you who, who don't know what a typewriter is, and there may be somebody watching online who probably thinks that was, came over on the Mayflower. But the molded character on the typewriter strikes the ribbon against the paper and the symbol is reproduced. And Paul is saying, you are the model. You are a model 
church. You are an example of a great church. Now, don't let the word model scare you. I heard a, a man one time that said, you know, he said, my wife is so complimentary to me, she called me a model husband until I looked up the word model and it said small replica of the real thing. Well, the word model here is the example to be the one that everyone should follow. And then in verse six, Paul said, and you became followers of us and the Lord. Have you ever thought about you being an example as a church member? Sometimes you hear the word say, don't do as I say, but do as I do. But here Paul said, you do as we did. What if, you, what if everyone was just like you? What, and here's the question, what kind of church would my church be if every member was just like me? Because Paul said, you're doing what we did and you're followers of us and of the Lord. Someone wrote it this way. They said there's six types of people in every church. Those who cause things to happen. Those who watch things happen. Those who hope things happen. Those who do not care if anything happens. Five, those who do not know if anything happens. And six, those who hope nothing happens because it puts them on the spot. I've added one, those who are against everything that happens. But the question is, it, you're an example. All of us are an example. So what kind of members are we? But I want to share with you the example that they were, and I call it the witness of a great church. The witness of a great, great church begins with people who speak out. And I put the word amplification there. Because if you'll notice in verse 8, for the word, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only to Macedonia, and the Kaya, but also to every place. It's people who say something. Now, surely you know how to say something. Depends on the subject, doesn't it? I got y'all need a smile every now and then. Stumpy and his wife Martha, country folks, they went to the state fair every year, and every year Stumpy would say, Martha. I want to ride on that airplane. And every year Martha would say, I know Stumpy, but that airplane ride costs $100. And $100 is $100. This one year Stumpy and Martha went to the fair and Stumpy said, Martha, I'm 71 years old and if I don't ride that airplane this year, I may never get another chance. And Martha said, Stumpy, that there airplane ride cost $100 and $100 is a hundred dollars. Well, the pilot overheard them. And he said, folks, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll take both of you up for a ride and if you can stay quiet for the entire ride and not say one word, I won't charge you. But if you say one word, it's a hundred dollars. Stumpy and Martha agreed and up they go. Plane does all kinds of twists and turns and rolls and dives, but not a word is heard. He does all the tricks over and over again, but still not a word. Finally, he lands the plane, and the pilot turns to Stumpy, and he says, by golly, I, I did everything I could think of to get you to yell out, but you didn't. Stumpy said, well, I was going to say something when Martha fell out, but like she always says, 
$100 is $100. I'm glad to hear you laugh. You need to laugh a little bit. But I want you to know that people who say something, you know, you can't be a church when people don't say something. Two ways they spoke, actually. First of all, they testified or they advertised. Look at verse 8. The word of the Lord has sounded forth. The, the word, we get our word echo from that term sounded forth in the Greek. It, it was an echo of a loud noise like a thunder or a trumpet blast. The, and the perfect tense of it says that it, it's continuing to go on. It's not just a sound once, but it continues to sound forth. They're testifying. They are advertising. We know what an echo is. I heard of a country preacher who went to a famous Echo Canyon and had the reputation of being a place where you could get the clearest and truest echo of any words yelled out. And the preacher found that he was alone, so he hollered out, hello. And sure enough, the canyon echoed back in clarity, hello. So he bellowed out again, goodbye. And the answer resounded in clarity, goodbye. He looked around to make sure he was alone and he let it all out. He said, you're the greatest preacher that ever lived. And the echo said, baloney. <laughs> Speaking out, it's the key. You, there's, a, there's a sense in which you can be saved and silent. You might be content to keep your Christianity to yourself, but did you know that Jesus never intended for you to keep your Christianity to yourself? I heard, I've heard people say, well, I don't ever talk about it. It's a personal thing. I believe it's a personal thing, but you can't help but talk about it because it changes you. It, you don't stay the same. You are different. Jesus told us to go and to tell, and this church had the joy of sounding forth the word of the Lord. They, they spoke it out. Isn't it interesting that we can talk about everything under the sun except the Lord? We talk about football and baseball and sports and school and COVID and the election and whatever political party you don't like. We talk about that. But people need to hear some hope. If there was ever a time when everybody's world is on shaky ground, it's right now. And we need to tell them about the Lord. There's, we, a preacher, a preacher a long time ago, P.H. Welshimmer said, if we want them to coming down the aisle, we've got to go down the street. They will not seek. They must be sought. And Jesus even said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You find Jesus seeking out people. When he came to the woman at the well, she was not somebody that everyone was seeking out because that's why she was there in the middle of the day because no one else wanted to be around her. She'd already had so many husbands and she was living with a man out of wedlock. But Jesus sought her because he knew that she needed salvation. And when we seek out people and talk to them, then we can share the Lord with them. Listen, look for opportunities you may be socially distancing, standing in a line, but you can still speak the word of the Lord or a waitress or a waiter that serves you. You can easily sound, say something about Jesus. 
But there also was their testimony or their actions in verse 8. Your faith toward God has gone out and spread abroad. They turned to God from idols. And people noticed. It shows the power of a silent testimony. You may not realize people are watching you, but they are. They're watching you all the time, and I'm not trying to make you paranoid. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the fact that people are observing how you conduct yourselves. They're making judgments based on how you conduct yourself and live out your life. But notice the, in verse 8, these two quotations, the word of the Lord and your faith toward God. The word of the Lord came down to man and our faith toward God goes up to him. And those two things together constitute salvation. And when salvation happens, it changes our life. So God's word, how are people saved today? They hear the truth of God's word. People are not saved by opinions. People are not saved by different stories they hear. They're, they're saved by the fact that they're told that God came down died for us, rose again, ascended to heaven, paid the price for sin, and our trust and faith goes toward him, and salvation happens. You got a perfect picture of it right there. It shows the silent power of a testimony, and the word of the Lord came to man. Actually, if you look back in verse 5, it says the word came to them then, and then in verse 8, it's going out from them. It shows the changed life, the testimony. He didn't need to inform the Philippians or the Colossians because the Thessalonians have already been telling what's going on. He said that all around in Macedonia, all around in Achaia, it's all there. People are knowing what's going on. So people who speak out. The second quality of a great church or witness is people who, and I've already alluded to this, who live it out. There's a transformation. Now notice a couple of things in verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I want you to notice a couple of things about verse 9. First of all, it speaks about being saved or being turned around the word turned, when you turn, you go from one direction to the other. You don't keep, you, you, there's no turn if you keep going in the same direction. Turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It, it shows repentance. Now, I want to be real clear. The, the order is this, to God from idols. Salvation comes when you turn to God. And, and really, he's saying the true God, the living and true God, you've turned from a false God, all of these idols, you've turned from that false God to the true and living God. You've come to him. He's the one that's changed your life. And that's a picture of faith and repentance because faith is turning to, to God. Repentance is turning from your sin. Now, Many times on Sunday, I say stuff like, you need to repent of your sins and turn to God. I'm not saying that you have to get your life all in order before you can come to God. 
basically what I mean is you, you need to be sick of this life. You need to be realized that this life is not taking me anywhere but to hell. And I'm turning to the true and living God because all of this is not the right direction. But don't ever think that you've got to get your life right. Repentance means I've got to get my act together. I've got to turn, quit all of my sin. Because he's saying, you folks in Thessalonica, you, you turn from all these Roman gods and all these Greek gods and all these pagan gods. You left that behind because you saw the true and living God. When Paul came to Thessalonica, he, he was only there three Sabbaths. I doubt seriously he stood up there and preached on the evils of Apollo or the evils of Athena. He probably didn't even mention the dead idols. He probably just said, y'all need to come meet Jesus who changed your life, who give you life, who is alive, who is resurrected. Faith is a, is a step with two consequences. When you turn to God... You automatically put you back on your sin. I, I, I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. Put your hand in front of your face. Put your palm in front of your face. All right, now I want you to turn it facing out. Okay, now your palm, your palm is facing out, and now you see the back of your hand, don't you? But was that two moves? That was one move, wasn't it? but two consequences. I can no longer see my palm, I see the back of my hand. When you turn to God, you turn from, you put your back on your old way of life. But a lot of people think, well, I'm gonna turn to God and I'm gonna keep living the way that I want to live. But when a person turns to God, they're leaving their sinful past. Well, you're thinking, well, back then they were worshiping all kinds of idols. We don't have idolatry in our culture anymore. <laughs> well, you need to think again. Ray Steadman said he heard of a Chinese man who visited here and was asked upon his return to China whether Americans worshiped idols. And he said, yes, they do. They have three of them. In winter, they worship a fat man with a red suit. In the spring, they worship a rabbit. And in the fall, they sacrifice a turkey. We have all kinds of idols, celebrities, sports stars, our places of greed that we've built with our own hands. But the command to repent in the Bible is most often spoken to churches and believers. Because God reveals more and more truth, we continue to change our mind about things and turn, and turn to him. Folks, what I'm trying to say is that salvation's not just praying a prayer. It's a commitment of your life. And when you commit your life, your life changes. You don't stay the same, at least not for a long period. I mean, obviously you're a new babe in Christ, a new baby in Jesus, and you begin to grow, but you don't stay the same. It, I'm amazed at how many people, they just keep doing the same thing over and over. Two construction workers had taken a lunch break and they opened up their lunches and one of them looked inside his and he said, not bologna again. I can't believe it. I hate bologna. This is the third time this week I've had bologna. I can't stand bologna. His friend said, well, why don't you ask your wife to make something different? He said, I don't have a wife. I made these sandwiches myself. <laughs> 
one of my favorite stories, jokes, whatever you want to call it. George and Jack were avid moose hunters. They heard that moose hunting in Canada was the best, so they chartered a plane to take them back into the wilds of Canada and left them there for a week. And when they came back, and chartered their, they radioed their plane to come pick them up. Pilot two look, looked at the two moose. I almost said meese. <laughs> the two moose. And he said, there's no way. You, we cannot put those moose on this plane. It'll be way overweight. We'll never... We'll never make it. And they began to argue with him. They were upset. We spent all week hunting these moose. And the pilot we had hired last year wasn't worried about the moose's weight. So the pilot let them put the moose on board. And the overloaded plane was only airborne for a few minutes. And due to the extra weight, it lost altitude, crashed into the side of the mountain. Fortunately, they all survived. And as they were climbing out, George asked Jack, where are we? And he said, I think we're about a mile further than we made it last year. <laughs> True repentance means I'm not going to go back here. I'm not going to be the same. Yeah, I still make mistakes. I might sin. However... I'm not going to live like I've been living. And you can only do that when you stay in tune with the Lord. When a person comes to the altar and they weep and they thrash about and they call upon God for salvation, then they go on doing what they used to do. There's something wrong. I like what Oliver Goldsmith said. People seldom improve when they have no other model but themselves to copy after. Well, we don't copy after ourselves. We copy after Christ. These people turned. They were saved. They turned around. But, but they also, it says in verse 9, they began to serve. They became servants. They tuned in. The word serve in verse 9 is the word doulos or slave. It has the root word which means to bind. I am bound to Jesus. I'm going to serve him. They had been a slave to idols and to paganism, but now they were serving the most true and high and living God. The word serving and the word waiting in verse 10 are both present infinitives, which means the action does not cease. In other words, when I follow Jesus, I'm going to keep on serving him. I'm going to keep on waiting for him. I don't just serve once. I'm going to serve him as long as I have life or breath. I'm always going to have life. You know, you're never going to die. You'll never die. Your body will die, but you're not going to die. You will never cease to exist. Isn't that, that's a radical thought, isn't it? Once, once you're given life, you never cease to exist. Now, fortunately, we're not going to cease, we're not going to exist in this body forever. But I'm still going to serve the Lord as long as I've got breath on this earth. And I'm going to wait for the Lord as long as I've got breath on this earth. And members in growing churches do the work of the church. They've, they find ways to serve. There are a lot of different ways to serve. And sometimes it's not in the building. Sometimes it's serving others outside the building. But it's still, I'm do, are you doing anything? And the only reason you're doing it 
is because you love Jesus. That's the servant. You see, the job of our church is not to impact the church, but it's to impact the world. People are not impressed when we just gather together. Now, it's important, but let me ask you this. Do you ever go to sporting, you ever go to football games when we could, used to could go? Or, okay, when you go to a football game, do you ever get excited about their huddle? They don't even know what a huddle is. <laughs> You're not even paying attention when they huddle. The world's not paying attention when we huddle, when we gather together. Pays attention when we're running a play or when we're serving in the community. One other characteristic, and this ought to be the most encouraging one to you. People who speak out, people who live it out, but it's also people who look up with anticipation. Look at verse 10. And to wait, I want you to notice something. That little verse has several things in it. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did you notice he talks about the resurrection, the ascension, the second coming, and the deliverance of God's people waiting for his return? All in that one little verse. Now you're talking about a verse full of hope. Because he's in heaven, we're waiting for Jesus. I, I won't know about you, but I've told him several times... Even today, Lord, you missed a good opportunity not to come back today. I just want you to know that. It's usually when I'm frustrated. You ever get that way? I want to tell you something. You can just see, I don't know if you've read the end, but you can just see how people are becoming more and more blind to evil. And it's, it's like they're being led to the slaughter. It just shows us that it's getting closer. Dr. George Sweeting, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute from 1971 until 1987, he estimated that more than one-fourth of the Bible is predictive prophecy. He said both the Old and the New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament, and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to, the, to this theme. And of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return, one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event, the return of Jesus. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. So we're looking. We're waiting. One little girl heard the preacher talking about the second coming of Christ. And on the way home... She said, Mommy, do you believe Jesus will come back? And her mom said, yes. Could he come this week? She said, yes. Could he come today? Yes. Could he come in the next hour? Yes. In the next few minutes? Yes, dear. 
Well, mom, would you comb my hair? <laughs> one pastor told me one time, long time ago, he said, when the Lord returns, my congregation's going to go first. And I said, well, how do you figure that? And he said, because the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. (laughs) What keeps us going? Knowing Jesus is coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. I know it's closer than it's ever been. I can say that with definite certainty. It's closer than it's ever been. And the signs are there. But it's still up to him. But the thing that gives us hope is he's coming back. And we're going to see our loved ones again who've died in the Lord. Because he's going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We get to that in chapter 4, by the way, of this certain book. There's one other thing I want you to notice. We are rescued from wrath or tribulation. Now, not, not everybody agrees with me on this. I think most of you probably do, or you would have left a long time ago. But not everybody agrees with me on my eschatology, my belief of the second coming. Um, only the return of Jesus will show them that I was right. <laughs> I believe there's going to be a snatching away of believers called we call it the rapture don't write me i know the word rapture is not in the bible but the activity is call it the snatching away the 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 snatching away of believers you're going to find that even in this book and i believe after that that the 70th week of daniel is going to take place that hasn't taken place yet and i believe there's going to be a time of tribulation Now, the reason I believe the Christians are taken away first is because, first of all, the restrainer, we'll even see that here, the restrainer is still here on the earth. Who is the restrainer? The Holy Spirit. And when you take the Christians out, Holy Spirit, obviously, he's God, so he's still going to be here, but the restrainer is going to be removed. And the world is going to go through a time of tribulation. And during that time of tribulation, God's still trying to save as many people as he can. And when I say trying, the salvation's there, but it's that the people won't come to him. There will be some that will be saved. But when you look at verse 10, it says, who delivers, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, all that's in one phrase. We're looking for Jesus to return who will deliver us from the wrath to come. There's two words for wrath in the New Testament. One of them is thumos. You experience that when you drive in Lubbock. It is a sudden outburst of white hot wrath. I have a lot of thumos moments when I drive around here. That's why I have when my windows are up. That is not the word here. It's not a sudden outburst. The word here is O-R-G-E, orgy, which means to swell slowly. It's a word that suggests a slow, controlled anger that's building or a wrath of judgment. It's judgment under control. And he said he's delivered us from that already. 
We're not going to be here during that wrath of judgment. The word ek meaning out from the coming of Christ and wrath are spoken of in the same breath. The wrath on the sinful world that's about to come, he delivers us from that. When did, where did he take it for us? Well, when we get to chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake up or sleep, we should live together with him. We're not going to face the wrath of God because it's already been taken for us on the cross. Jesus took it for us. So when you are saved, you're delivered from the wrath that's going to fall on a sinful, lost, unbelieving, unrepentant world. You're not going to face that. Now, the stuff that we do for Jesus, that's, that's at the Bema seat. That's going to be judged whether it was done with the right motives and there'll be rewards and things. But as far as whether or not you're going to heaven, that's already been taken care of. Amen? G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher from the last century, said... To me, the second coming is the perpetual light in the path which makes the present bearable. I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that maybe before the morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. I am thankful for this church. We're not a perfect church because as far as I'm concerned, I haven't found any perfect people in it, me included. Just forgiven. But I I believe we're a church that can speak out the word of God and we can speak out about Jesus. And I know that we're a people that can live it out because I see you living it out. And we're also a people who are looking up. Lord, just like John in the last book, part of the book of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come get us. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.